Well, hey, everybody, whether you're here in the room or joining us online, really from wherever you happen to be, it is great to be with you. And I say that wherever you happen to be thing again this week because I recently met with a couple from Keystone who's planning to get married in May. And during our conversation, they informed me that they sent a young woman that they know in Bangladesh a laptop so she could watch Keystone's services. And she does. So, I guess we need to say hello to our friend Naza, who is joining us from the other side of the world. It is great to have you along for the ride, yeah. This internet thing is really taking off, I'm just telling you right now. So Al Gore, wise in his ways. Um, real quick housekeeping note, if you're here in the room, if you could scoot towards the center, we've got about 50 people still looking for chairs, and if you are looking for chairs, there's also some more over on this corner. Uh, so just want to make sure we have a place to accommodate you. Um, and also, um, as we start to fill again, we would love you to consider jumping in as one of our, um, helping out with our children's teams or guest experience. So if that's you, uh, just the next steps desk on your way out, we'd love to tell you a little bit more about that opportunity. But as many of you know, we're in the middle of a series we've called Seven, in which we're exploring seven ancient letters that were originally addressed to churches on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. And these letters were recorded for us in the last book of the Bible, a rather mysterious document called Revelation, uh, that, as I've noted, is an example of a type of literature called apocalypse. Now, apocalypse is known for its extensive use of metaphor and imagery that would have made a lot of sense in its original context, but that can be a real challenge for us who are trying to read it 2,000 years removed from that context. And so kind of in the series, what we've been doing is to sort of I want to show you what they saw when they received Revelation um, and then talk about what it might mean for us 2,000 years later on the other side of the world. All right, so that said, today we get to explore the fourth of those seven letters. This one was originally intended for Christians living in an ancient city called Thyatira. And to get us going, once again this week, I want to show you a 30-second video to give you a sense of what the city looks like should you visit it today. And this video, uh, super cool, it begins with a Google Earth-powered zoom-in, which to me is super helpful to kind of establish where exactly these churches were located in the world. So let's watch this video together. <music> video, when you visit the site of Thyatira today, the site is a bit underwhelming, but I thought the quick clips made it a little more exciting, but really not very exciting because uh, the ruins of what you saw there are of the ancient market or Agora, and it's surrounded by a present-day Turkish farming town, which means that much of the ancient city, the one that would have been standing when the letter the, uh, Revelation landed in the city, uh, is sort of beneath the modern buildings. And so consequently, when you visit, it's really hard to get a sense of what the city would have been like. But scholars who study these sorts of things tell us that in ancient times, Thyatira was a large, blue-collar, working-class city where many products were produced and then exported. And it was specifically known for manufacturing polished bronze, which was used for mirrors in the first century, and also a purple dye that was used in the production of high-end clothing. Uh, the city was founded 
at the intersection of two major highways, one running north-south and the other running east-west, not unlike our fair city, Grand Rapids, Michigan, right? So you got 96 and 131. Uh, consequently, because it was standing at a crossroads, it was a fantastic place for exporting products and also exporting ideas. And so now with that bit of context, let me show you how Jesus began his message to the church in Thyatira, he says this, I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. In other words, Jesus says, and this is huge, I see you. I see your hearts. I see your actions. I see that you're growing in love and service and even in your ability to remain faithful during difficult times. That's that perseverance thing. And now if you think about it, this is really an amazing affirmation for any group of Christians, especially if it comes directly from Jesus. I mean, I know a whole bunch of pastors. They're like, we meet for coffee and talk sometimes. I guess misery loves company. Just saying, right? Um, but we would all love it if the churches that we had the honor of serving and the people in those churches were known for the way they loved and served and persevered. They were seen as like people who would do what Jesus told his followers to do even when they didn't feel like doing it. That they would like love even when they didn't feel like loving, and then they would serve even when they didn't feel like serving, and they'd give even when they didn't feel like giving. And again, I think that's what Jesus is getting after when he says, you know, you're persevering. Uh, Christians in Thyatira were demonstrating faithfulness over the long haul, like month after month, year after year, they were doing what Jesus instructed them to do, even and especially as they navigated challenging times. And, and honestly, first century Thyatira, you know, it was a really challenging time to be a Christian uh, living in the city, specifically because of the many trade guilds that were responsible for the city's economic output. Like if you want to understand what was going on in ancient Thyatira, trade guilds are what you need to know about. And the guilds were sort of like the forerunners of today's labor unions, but they were like way more than today's labor unions. Uh, the guilds provided a community to which you would belong and literally, you had a section of the city where members of the guild would live together, like you had your own neighborhood. So you experienced day-to-day -day life together. Your kids would be trained in the gymnasium together. Uh, and you even worshiped together in whichever shrine or temple was dedicated to the god who was attached to your guild. And moreover, like as a part of the, the worship of that God, uh, the guild members would have regular communal meals together in those temples, meals that really were more like um, drinking parties. So I was in Ann Arbor uh, for the game, and we, we parked kind of by my old dorm, and we walked through Fraternity Row on the way, and my son noticed that drinking parties, I'll just stop there, right? Yeah. Yeah, these drinking parties would go like long into the evenings. It would eventually get like completely out of control. In fact, scholars tell us that um, after people were sufficiently intoxicated, um, it was customary for young people to be brought in, boys, girls, slaves. And um, like, how do I keep this PG-13? Um, they were brought in for the enjoyment of the guild members. Mm -hmm. um, and when that happened, like all rules were off. Uh, and the guild feasts were like such an integral part of the culture in Thyatira, like archaeologists have actually found images depicting these celebrations on urns. And, and just notice that in this picture, like the participants are sort of reclining on couches as they drank. And I, I won't bore you with the detail, but like there's a specific Greek word for these 
couches and just hold on to that. This, this couch thing becomes important uh, a bit later. Anyway, you can begin to imagine how hard it would be, um, the challenges that would surface if you became a follower of Jesus in Thyatira and were a member of the guild. I mean, just for fun, like, let's say you're a part of the Bronze Workers Guild, and you're making those mirrors, and your dad was a bronze worker, and your grandpa was a bronze worker, or had been a bronze worker, and the, you live in the town, section of town where, like, the bronze workers all live, and, and you all worshiped at the same temple, and you attend those dinners that were located at the temples, and, and then suddenly, like, you place your faith in Jesus, you catch a different vision for what life should be like. And, and because of your faith in Jesus, you stopped visiting the temple. Like you went to work, but you didn't go to the temple anymore. And, and you go to work, but you didn't participate in the feasts anymore. And if you started doing that, you'd, you'd immediately be viewed as like antisocial and judgmental. Like, who do you, what, what are you doing? You're one of us. And you're like, well, I, I don't know that I can do that anymore. And then, you know, your neighbors that were part of the guild would start talking about you and, and there might even be like financial consequences for your family. I mean, if you said like, I'm not going to do the temple thing anymore and temple worship was thought to bring about like the divine blessing of your guild, then your neighbors would blame you for any challenge that came upon their community. So, so like to embrace faith in Jesus as a guild member would be to start down a path leading to financial and relational isolation. Unless, of course, you decided to try to keep a foot in both worlds. To follow Jesus and to attend the guild feast. And apparently that's what was happening because, well, as Jesus continues his message to the church at Thyatira, he says as much. And, and now, before I show you the specifics of what he said, I need to recount a memory that I have from my childhood that's connected to the passage we're about to read, okay? Okay. Uh, seriously, you see, when I was growing up, my mom, who's here in the room today, hi, mom, um, wanted my brother and I to be exposed to the entire Bible. And so she decided that each morning during breakfast, she'd read a section of the Bible to us, and then we'd talk about it, which is, I mean, that sounds like a great idea. That's like A-plus mom move, right? But she also decided that she wasn't going to skip anything. She's very thorough. And so we were going to hear every word of the Bible, even though at the time, I think I was in sixth grade and my brother was in third grade. So, Song of Songs, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> let that sink in, yeah. So you can imagine how we felt one morning when over a bowl of instant oatmeal with extra raisins, my mom relayed Jesus' words of correction to the church at Thyatira. Here's what he said. <clears throat> Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. So far, so good. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. That sounds a lot like guild feast to me, right? Um, I have given her time to repent of her immorality. Okay, so far, so good. But she is unwilling, so, <clears throat> so says Jesus, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. Oh, it gets worse. I will strike her children dead. <laughs> Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. <clears throat> and as she finished reading, there was an awkward silence which descended upon the breakfast table, right? I remember staring deeply into my oatmeal, trying to find a way of escape, and wondering what to say. I mean, like, what exactly is Jesus getting after here? It doesn't seem very Jesus-y, right? Like, Jesus, what's going on, buddy? Try the decaf, right? Yeah. So... I think what I did is I just nodded and I said, you know, amen. 
because that's what we say when we don't know what to say. And, and I'm pretty sure my mom didn't know what to say either at the time, and so she just nodded and said, all right, well, I think it's time we get ready for school. And my, and my brother and I were like, great idea, yeah. But the question remains, like, what is Jesus talking about in this passage? What is he trying to say, and who in the world is Jezebel? Well, fortunately, since the seventh grade, I have learned that even though Jesus addresses a woman in the church of Thyatira as Jezebel, that probably wasn't her name. It was likely a nickname that connected her in the minds of the first people uh, to hear these words to a woman uh, in the Old Testament narrative, Old Testament of your Bible. She was an evil queen who lived 800 years before the time of Jesus, and her name was Jezebel. And I'm assuming that a few of us could use a quick refresher on Jezebel's story, so please allow me to relay her story by briefly unpacking three words, and they all start with C. I'm so excited about that this week. Um, Calling, compromise, and correction. Calling, compromise, and correction. So first we'll go after calling. Um, As many of you know, the authors of the Old Testament record for us that God called the nation of Israel, to be set apart for him and to live in such a way that the whole world would come to know him. In fact, shortly after rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, God told the people, he said, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then he says, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. God's like, I've set you apart You have a mission, you have a purpose, you have a role to play. And then he goes on, he says, although the whole earth is mine, like it's all mine, but you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy, which just means set apart, nation. So you're set apart on purpose for a purpose. And it's not just that you're going to be my special people, you will be my special people, but through you, I'm gonna introduce myself to the whole world, kingdom of priests. Now, it's easy to miss, but historically speaking, what what God says here to Israel, um, the whole kingdom of priests and holy nation thing, that was like an unprecedented idea in human history. The first people who heard those words would have been very familiar with the role of priests. There were priests all over the ancient world. Uh, They were the set-apart holy people um, in a nation who helped other people in that nation understand a particular God, what that God was like, his character, and all that. Uh, Ancient religion was always tribal Ancient religion was always regional. So they would have wondered, like, what does God mean when he called Israel to be a whole nation of priests? And that it wasn't just about us, but it was something God wanted to do for the whole world. Well, after 40 years in the wilderness, they sort of have come to understand what God had in mind. And eventually, the people of Israel enter the land we now call Israel to live out their calling. And by that time, they understood that they were to be set apart from and different than the nations that surrounded them. They they were called to a higher standard because they were the people of God. They were to engage life with a different set of rules. They were to reflect the character of of God, like the God, the one true God in their world. And practically what that meant was that they were to live justly and love mercy and walk humbly through this life. They were to demonstrate compassion and generosity to one another and to those who didn't know God. They were to be, and this is the title for the talk today, an island of sanity in a world that had gone mad. But of course, there's a risk in God's plan because if the people of Israel compromised, and that's our second word, right? 
um, and begin to look like everybody else, God's plan basically implodes. And that's where Jezebel comes in. So 800 years or so before the time of Jesus, Israel has a king by the name of Ahab who sought to make a political alliance with a king of a neighboring nation. And as was customary at the time, the daughter of that king, a woman named Jezebel, was sent to marry Ahab. Uh, and so when Jezebel comes to Israel, she brings with her the worship of the pagan god Baal. I had a professor at Michigan who called him Baal, but I, I just think that's funny. I can't say that. Yeah, so Baal. Um, and Baal was a fertility god who was also believed to control the rains. And over time, Jezebel proves to be very persuasive. And within a few years, Baal worship becomes the national religion of Israel. So temples to Baal go up all over the land of Israel, like the land that God chose for his people through which they would influence the world. And then after the temples go up, Jezebel begins to systematically eliminate all of the prophets of God. In other words, Israel becomes just like everybody else. The people lose their mission to reflect the character of God to their world. So that's calling and compromise. And now uh, talk a little bit about correction. Because as the story continues to unfold, God sends a prophet named Elijah to call down a three-year drought on the region. Basically, message to the people, uh, Baal doesn't control the rain. Someone else has that job. But in the middle of this three-year drought, like Israel's crops are devastated and people begin to starve. And you start to say to yourself, wait, okay, that doesn't... Why would God, if he loves these people, why in the world would he allow a drought on their land? That doesn't, I mean, that doesn't feel very loving. But when you think about it, it actually is God does that because he, because he loves them and because he has plans for them and because he wants them back. He doesn't give up on them. He wants to recapture their attention and their imagination and their hearts, like as a people, to redirect them so that they re-engage with their mission to reflect him in their world to their world so he corrects them to remind them and to re-envision them. And this isn't the only time you see this. Like if you spend some time reading the Bible carefully, you'll see that God's discipline of his people is always done with redemptive goals in mind. So, so that's Jezebel. Like three words, calling, compromise, and correction. And now fast forward with me to the end of the first century, and God's people live in communities all over the Mediterranean Rim, including a city at a crossroads called Thyatira. And the people of God in the first century are no longer all Jewish because both Jewish people and non-Jewish people have come together through their faith in Jesus. So if you were to visit a church in Thyatira, you'd have people from Jewish backgrounds, people from non-Jewish backgrounds. Um, but like ancient Israel, uh, these people too, this church, had been given a calling. And in fact, one of Jesus' first disciples, a man named Peter, describes this calling while using some very familiar language. In a letter to early Christians, here's what Peter writes. And the you here is plural. So if you're from the South, you know, y'all. <laughs> but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people belonging to God. Okay, why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And he goes on. He's like, once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. You're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How did I become God's people? I received the sacrifice of Jesus. I placed my faith in what he accomplished on the cross for me. And now I'm a part of the people of God. And I have a mission. And I have a calling. Like Israel, I wasn't just rescued for my sake. I was rescued because God wanted to partner with me to bring a message to the world. In other words, the Christians living in Thyatira were to be in Thyatira, but not like everybody else. In Thyatira, the Jesus community was to be like an island of sanity in a world gone Mad. And, and so when someone in Thyatira got sick of the endless drinking and the orgiastic behavior, and when they got tired and, of pursuing just sensual appetites that never seemed to be fulfilled but always left them feeling dark and empty, then the Jesus community was supposed to be a place where they could escape the insanity and to find something better. And so the church at Thyatira was supposed to be a community that was set apart that operated under like a different set of rules with a different understanding and where people could find hope. When you see descriptions of these ancient communities, the, the, the image that's often used is light, like they wanted to be light in the darkness of their world. Which brings me back to Jezebel, because apparently in the church, there was a charismatic and persuasive woman who was saying that it was okay to keep one foot in both worlds, to follow Jesus and to do the whole guild shrine party orgy thing. Uh, but, but here's the thing. To do so was to compromise their calling. And so just like in the story of Jezebel, God was ready to bring correction. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. And I did spend some time with this because it is a little intense, right? And so I was like, okay, help me, scholars. <laughs> and, and here's what they tell us. They say when Jesus, when Jesus says, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, the word translated bed here can also be translated couch. It's the same Greek word used to describe the couches that would be used at the guild feast. So it's almost like Jesus says, you know, her party couch is going to become like her sickbed. And, and her children, uh, they, they tell us scholars that, um, that those are like the teachers in the church who have listened to Jezebel and who resonate with what she's saying and who are telling other people that message. So like her theological children, not her literal children. And so Jesus just says like, this has got to stop. I'm going to take them out. This is, this is too important. Moreover, he says this, he says, then, like, I, I, I'm going to take them out, because then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each according to their deeds. So apparently, like, whatever Jesus was going to do to these teachers was, was going to be so stunning that Christians all over the region would know that they need to follow and not compromise, all right, so um, at this point, I know what a few of you must be thinking. Like, you're thinking, okay, this was a very big deal to Jesus. That's much as clear, and it was. Um, and, and I think I know why. It's like, because when the Jesus community becomes just like everybody else, it loses its calling, and it loses its mission, and it loses its purpose. 
And the world, the world that God loves desperately, needs people, individuals and communities, who will reflect the love and grace and mercy and forgiveness modeled by Jesus. And, and when people within the movement don't look any different than people on the outside of the movement, then, well, then followers of Jesus really have nothing to offer the world. And so Jesus challenges his church to return, to repent, return to its calling and mission. And he uses strong language to do so. I was reading in anticipation of today and I read something and I'm like, that is so incredible. The author said this. It's almost like Jesus says to them, I didn't give my life to raise up a people who look like everybody else. It's so much bigger. It's so much better. You step out of your old life and you step into this new life where you're learning a new way to be human and perfection is, is the standard, but it's not your goal. You need to be making progress in that way. But listen, I want to use you to bring some more light into the world. Now, as you can imagine, this has nothing to do with us 2,000 years later, right? Yeah. Just before we come in for Atlanta, just to, to talk a little bit about me, about us, and about our church. And I'll just start with a, a really challenging question that haunted me all week, so I can't wait to share. <laughs> it goes like this. How would your life be different if you weren't a follower of Jesus? And I'm aware that not everyone in the room and watching online is a follower of Jesus yet, and you need to know that we exist as an organization to help introduce you to Jesus. We're so honored that you're here, and you're probably really excited that we're beating up on the Christians today, so hey, you know, that's me too, but okay. But Christians, how would your life be different if you weren't a follower of Jesus, or, or maybe to say it a little differently, um, have you, however, unintentionally become just like everyone else? Like, what makes your life, what makes my life distinctive? Or if you're honest, like, you know, say, I guess I'm just as hungry for power and influence as everyone else. And, um, you know, if I'm being honest, at least with myself, I guess my, my spending patterns look pretty similar too. And, you know, you say, you know, am I more willing to make the sacrifices in my life to help make my key relationships with, like, my, my partner and my kids to, to make that work? Or am I just as inclined as everybody else to sort of crash those relationships? Am I just as inclined to, like, hold a grudge and not to forgive someone? Even though I know Jesus forgave me and I know he wants me to forgive, but I just, I just have never really, I don't know, I, I haven't really ever found the courage or resolve to actually do it. Or maybe this one, like, you know, are, are we any more likely to pursue, pursue a path of purity than people who don't follow Jesus? Or have we just become like everybody else? Um, I, you know, for me, as I reflected this week about, like, the, the state of the church in America, um, I, I wonder sometimes if we've been so seduced to the point that, like, the, really the only distinctness that followers of Jesus have in our culture is like church attendance and like very limited social activism. And, and some of the lack of influence that we see in our culture and some of the frustration people have with followers of Jesus who aren't followers of Jesus could be traced back to this. And what's so tragic is that historically speaking, whenever this has happened, like followers of Jesus lose their ability, our ability to influence our culture in positive ways. And as I was prepping this week, I feel like I was like really like down on Wednesday. And then Thursday morning I woke up and I thought, you know what? This passage doesn't 
bother me. It, I actually find it pretty compelling. It, it makes me want to take an honest inventory of my heart and my life and my relationships. It, it makes me want to examine areas and corners of my heart that maybe I haven't looked at for a long time because I get into habits just like you do, right? And we, we end up, these habits get momentum. It pushes us in paths and like we get down the road and we go, how do we ever get here, right? It's often not intentional. It's just we sort of slide there. But when I get there and I think, I, I, I want to do that work because deep down, I want to reflect something of God's character in our world. I want to reflect a better way to be human. I, I want it, I want it, because I feel like it's, in a weird way, the purpose I was made for, that we were made for when God created us and rescued us in Jesus. But, but I want it for us, but I also want it for our world. Like, I don't want to be just like everyone else. Like, Jesus has made a huge difference in my life. And I want to be a part of making a huge difference in our community and in our world. And I think a whole bunch of us feel the same way. Because we as followers of Jesus, are here for a reason. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. So may we be known for our love and our faithfulness and our service and our perseverance. May we be the kind of people, may we be the kind of church who loves when we don't feel like loving and who serves when we don't always feel like serving and who gives when we don't feel like giving. And may the light from our lives and from our community shine into the darkness that surrounds us. May we be an island of sanity in a world gone mad. All right, now if you're in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand and I'll close our time in prayer. Mm. Heavenly Father, these are, um, these are weighty conversations, um, but so, so important. We confess that we do not always live up to the standards that you have for us, that mission and purpose that you have for our lives. And for all those times that we fall and we fail, we thank you for grace that meets us in that spot. But we also thank you for showing us where true north lies, that we are to be in our world and to follow the example of your son, to be a new sort of people in the world. And I pray that as we lean into that identity and that mission and that purpose, the light from our lives and the light from our church will act like a beacon of hope in our community and that people who are hurting and who are lost and who are tired would come, find community, find grace, and be introduced to Jesus. Thank you for preserving these ancient words that ring so, so true thousands of years later. And I pray that your grace and your peace would be on us all. In the matchless name of your son, our savior, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Friends. 
Go in peace. We'll see you next week for part six of seven.